most wonderful show is Keeping up with the Joneses. AJ Jones. Yes, sir. And how are you, madam? I am pretty good. Tell me about your week. Um, It was a good week. Just sort of your normal stuff uh, until it sort of took a turn for your not normal stuff. Well, it started out with conference hangover, didn't it? It did, yeah. Because we did the more conference and then... You know, once you've done a conference, you're just like, where are we? What's the time zone? Yeah, you feel like you're in a bit of a fog. I did uh, manage to get four and a half hours on a blanket in a park, just chatting with the Lord on Tuesday, which was great. Yes, you did. You managed to get some some downtime in with the Lord, which was amazing. Yeah. I don't remember anything else of this week, possibly because the events of the end of the week overshadowed everything else. Yeah, I really can't even think about <laughs> what happened this week. So why don't you tell them what happened on Friday? On Friday, I got a phone call from my eldest sister who lives in England. You're going to get to know a lot about the Jones family today. I have three sisters. Two of them live in the United Kingdom, and one of them lives in the United States here with me. My sister Karis lives in North Carolina. I live here in Tennessee. My eldest sister lives in England, and my youngest sister lives in Scotland. So we're all over the place. And my father was on vacation in... Croatia. Thank you, Croatia which I think is the former Yugoslavia. I think it's over there somewhere. Yeah, Yeah, it's north of Italy, I think. So yeah, I get a phone call from my sister saying, hey, have you heard from dad? And I said, I have not. And she said, I got a voicemail from him that he was in the hospital. He's just had surgery. And I was like, wait, what? So I call my sister and she says, yeah, this is the voicemail I get from dad. He's in Croatia. He was complaining of chest pains, went to the hospital and I was like, oh, do we know anything else? She said, no, don't don't know where he was staying or which hospital or anything. So internet to the rescue, Google and find out where he was staying, which we knew the city name mm-hmm. and realized there's two hospitals. So I called both hospitals via Google Voice. Yep. Praise God for Google. Yep. And praise God for the good people of Croatia who speak English. And they told me, no, you're... Father is not at this hospital, but if he had problems with his heart, there is a heart specialist hospital near here. And they tried to tell me the spelling of the city, but... It It was quite a strange name, wasn't it? It was, yeah. yeah. it was another city. But Google found it, despite the fact that my phonetic spelling of the city was completely wrong. Anyway, long story short, eventually get hold of a cardiologist in Croatia who said, yes, I know who your father is. Your father has had a massive heart attack and we had to do surgery, but he's in a fairly critical situation. And by the way, this is all through broken English. And he did try and explain that he had ruptured something three days ago. And he said something about that would normally kill somebody within 30 seconds. Yeah, he said what your father had would normally kill somebody in a matter of seconds. And it looks like your dad has had this for at least more than 24 hours. When we saw him. So again, all this is in broken English. He's saying, I'm so sorry to give you the bad news. I don't think your father is going to make it. And I'm like, oh, oh, okay. This is rapidly accelerated to a critical situation. Yeah. And so I then get off the phone from him and call my sisters, get them on a three-way conference call and let them know. This is what I found out. Dad's in hospital. It's a fairly critical situation. He was on a ventilator. That's right. He was in a medically induced coma. So I couldn't, couldn't talk to him. So meanwhile, my it's it's probably about what eleven p.m. in England when I'm having this conversation. Yeah, maybe. And so my sister and her husband start driving towards the closest airport, 
and think they're going to fly out and and see my dad and find out what's going on. And so I'd, I forgot to say that I told the doctor, hey, if anything happens, here's my phone number. Could you call me, please? So that was all a bit of a blur, wasn't it? That was Friday night. Mm-hmm. And we're like, oh, this has gone from dad's on vacation to dad's in a Croatian hospital in, uh, in, in a medically induced coma. Yeah. So nothing more you can do in that situation aside from prayer. It, anyway, it was all a bit surreal, wasn't it? Yes. And then maybe a few hours later, sadly, I got the phone call to say that my father had passed away. And so this very sweet daughter trying to give me as much information as possible. And just like that, I found out my dad has passed away. Yeah. And so I called my sisters back and let them know the the sad, sad news that my father's passed on. And that was how we ended Friday night, really. Yeah. By the time I went to bed and woke up Saturday morning, you know, while I was sleeping doing nothing, my younger sister had hopped on a plane and flown to another country, landed in... Croatia. Thank you. Landed in Croatia. Mm-hmm. And here's what's strange. Normally my dad is like so uh, left-brained and organized that he, for as long as I can remember, has always sent us an itinerary of everything that's happening. Where he's going, who he's traveling with, the phone numbers, the hotels, the ticket numbers, everything. This trip, nothing. Right. We didn't even know he was in Croatia until like we got the day before message. or something. Yeah. Yeah. So my sister lands in Croatia thinking, all right, where was dad staying? And this is the genius that she is. She, oh, she's so sharp. She realizes my dad had sent, uh, texted us a photo and she realized, oh, if he took that photo with his iPhone, that photo would be geotagged. So looked at the GPS coordinates of the photograph and found it was nearby a hotel. So went to that hotel and, and of course, the hotel staff knew exactly who he was. And so she got into his room, found his passport. Anyway, the, the, the short version of the story is my sister's in Croatia. God bless her. She's finding how you get a death certificate in Croatia and moving the body back from Croatia back to Scotland we can't do anything till we know when the body's getting back to, so we can know when we can have a funeral so we can know when to fly over. And so it's all been a bit of flux in the last 24, 48 hours. Yeah, it's a hurry up and wait, isn't it? It's yeah. we, we know that there's an enormous amount to do to get you over there and move stuff around for us here. And um, But of course, we, we can't really do anything until we have an idea of, of when the funeral will be and... We imagine you'll be staying over there for a little while afterwards to help your sisters. Yeah, not quite sure what needs to be done. I think as as much as it's it's a sad story, the truth is actually he's lived his life for Jesus his whole entire life. Yeah. And now he is reunited with his wife. And I mean, it's sad because we miss him, but he's in such a better place. And that's not a cliche thing. That's legit reality. He is where he's lived to be. His whole life has been spent serving Jesus. So it gives me no end of joy to think about the smile on his face, not only getting to see my mother, of course, but also getting to be with the Lord he served all his life yeah. is amazing. So yeah. the the promise and the hope that we have of eternal life in Jesus Christ is is really, really true. It's right. you know, it's what I'm leaning on. And I have so appreciated, oh my gosh, everybody who's reached out via Facebook or Instagram or just via messages, thank you so much for letting me know that you're praying for our family. Your prayers are making a huge difference. Yeah. Not just in my life, but in the life of my sisters and of their kids and our kids. 
It was hard telling our kids, wasn't it? Yeah, it's really sad. We we tried something different. So on Saturday morning, we told our kids, this is what's happened. And they all had a good cry. Well, MJ didn't quite understand it. No, and we told them all individually because mm-hmm. we, we knew that they would all react differently, which they did. And they're all in different stages of understanding. Yeah. But then the Holy Spirit gave us a genius idea. And we thought the thing that grandpa loved was food and buying his grandchildren toys. Yeah. So we said, all right, guys, we're all going to get dressed really nicely, put on some nice clothes. We let the girls wear makeup that mm-hmm. they were very excited yeah. about. Makeup out in public and pretty dresses. And we went out to our favorite restaurant. And we ordered whatever we wanted. And then we went around the table and we said, what was your favorite thing about grandpa? Yeah. And we all got to share amazing memories of my dad. And then we went to Toys R Us. We went to Toys R Us and they each got to buy a gift. They each got a gift that grandpa would have given them on this October trip. And, and then came home and, it, you know, Atia, as we were putting her bed tonight, she was like, today was amazing. Except for the fact that grandpa died. <laughs> And it was. It was an amazing day just to think about. He lived an amazing, full life. And it hasn't escaped me that he died of a broken heart. Yeah. And I think watching him care for my mom and then watching my mom pass on was just devastating, obviously, for my dad. Mm -hmm. Like we said, it thrills me that he is with the Lord, saddens me that we don't get to see him again. But but he's in a much better place. Yeah, so, so we're happy for him. So sorry that we've spent the last 10 minutes telling you a somewhat traumatic story. In part, we're telling that to just let you in on some of the details. I posted on social media this weekend that, hey, my dad passed, but I realized that his passing is somewhat more complicated in that he's in a foreign country and needs to be brought back. And the reason we're saying this to our podcast listeners is we're, we're not going to record a podcast per se tonight. We we don't have the emotional energy to do a normal one and the editing that it normally takes. But we're not going to leave you empty-handed. We do have a message that I spoke on cynicism later, which I think will be tremendous encouragement to everybody despite the title. We did want to let you know that the next couple of weeks, we're not uh, really sure what it looks like in terms of the podcast. We're going to do our best, but again, at times, uh, Alan won't be in the same country as I am and that sort of thing. So if you could pray for us for logistics and all the things that need to happen uh, in the next couple of weeks, we totally appreciate that. And, uh, and again, we'll, we'll do our best to have something up for you to listen to. Yeah. If you don't already follow us on social media, you can follow AJ at underscore AJ Jones on Instagram and on Twitter and on Facebook, you're a.j.jones. Yep. And then Alan is at Alan on everything yeah. because uh, he just, he's one of those early uh, adopter people. Well, then I've got a fairly <laughs> unique spelling of my name. It's true. It's A-L-Y-N. True. So if you follow that, you'll, you'll you'll be up to speed on where we are and what we're doing. But thank you for your prayers. They're hugely working. Thank you for your grace as we're traversing the next couple of weeks and working out what we're doing. We also want to remind you that uh, there's only two weeks left to apply for the School of Ministry. Whether you're uh, praying about year one or praying about year two, we'd love to have you with us this year and see what God will do with your eight months. If you just started listening to our podcast, this is not a normal episode by any means. It is under some fairly extenuating circumstances. Yeah. Normally we try and be upbeat and fun, but oh, so we, also, fun. we also want to be real to to where we are today. Yeah. So there you go. All right. Well, thank you guys for listening. This next bit that you're going to hear is a message I preached at Gray Center. I forget when. All about the antidote to cynicism. I hope you enjoy it. And hopefully we'll be back to our normal schedule next week. Bye. If you've got your Bibles with you, could you turn with me to the book of Proverbs? 
Would you give me permission to mess with some sacred cows this morning? So, it's funny, we all want God to move, don't we? One person. Perhaps it's not as funny as I thought, but we, we all want God to move, don't we? It's just that sometimes he requires things of us in order for him to move. And that's when things get a little uncomfortable. I think it's interesting that the most powerful person in the universe was hindered from doing what he wanted to do because of the unbelief in the village that he was in. It says because of their unbelief, he could only do a few miracles. Over the days that we can only do a few miracles. But their corporate unbelief prevented him from doing what he wanted to do. So my question this morning is, what if there's things in our lives that are preventing the very thing he wants to do in our lives? Wouldn't it be good to identify those things? Wouldn't it be good to get rid of them? Some of you are like, I don't, I don't know, what are, you, what are you talking about? Well, stay with me. Let's start in Proverbs chapter four. Let's pray first of all. Holy Spirit, would you help me? Would you... Uh, just illuminate your word this morning. Thank you for the gift of the Holy Scriptures. And Holy Spirit, would you come and would you anoint me? Would you make me brilliant for your name's sake? And would you come and join with us this morning, Lord? Would you light upon our hearts? Would you open our eyes, give us ears to hear? And may they put down their stones in Jesus' name, amen. All right, <laughs> Proverbs chapter four. We know that Proverbs was written by the wisest man that lived at the time, King Solomon. And they're brilliant. There's 31 chapters, one for each day of the month. And I find this, fas this passage fascinating because he says this, he says, above all else, just stop there for a second, wisest man in the universe at the time writing stuff down. And he says, hey, above all else, above everything else, the number one priority in your life, at this point, we should be like, what's he gonna say? And he says this, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. The number one priority that we should be having is guarding our heart. I find it interesting that Jesus said that it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out of him. Because out of the heart, the overflow of the, out of the mouth, the overflow of the heart speaks. So... Jesus is just saying, hey, the heart is a big deal. And so King Solomon here is saying, pay attention to your heart, guard it. I love the way the New Living Translation puts it. It says this, guard your heart above all else for it determines the course of your life. If you're not going where you want to be going, it could be an issue of the heart. Elsewhere in Proverbs, Proverbs 15, 15, Solomon says this, amazing verse. For the despondent, every day brings trouble. But for the happy heart, life is a continual feast. Your outlook will determine the day you're having. How many of you remember Winnie the Pooh? Eeyore was always having a bad day. Tigger, always having an amazing day. We get to choose the climate under which we live. And it's a matter of the heart determining the course of our life. So it's interesting, we're supposed to guard our heart. My question is, guard it against what? What do 
are we supposed to guard against? Well, I'm no rocket surgeon, but I think we're supposed to guard it against things that could be stolen. Turn with me to the New Testament, to John, John 10.10. This is the passage in Scripture where Jesus gives a job description of what Satan does and what he does. This distills it down. It is amazing to me that Christians who've known Jesus for a long time still get these two things confused. Jesus said about Satan, he said, the thief is only there to steal, kill and destroy. Do you know sometimes we attribute stuff that's been stolen from us, stuff that's been taken from us and stuff that's been destroyed to the work of God. Oh, he's testing me, he's building my faith, he's, you know, whatever. You're like, no. Read John 10.10, that wasn't the Lord. It's got all the hallmarks of the enemy right there. Jesus said, I came so that they can have real and eternal life. More and better life than they ever dreamed of. My question for you this morning is, what's the quality of your life like? Is it better than you ever dreamed of? If it's not, you might be living way below the glorious standard that Jesus expects for you in Scripture. Some of you know that I forget who, which stories I've told to which groups, so forgive me if you've already heard this. When I was 21, I had a nervous breakdown. My sympathetic nervous system stopped doing its job. I started hallucinating. I stopped being able to sleep. I started hearing voices. I was suicidal. I couldn't sleep at night. When I'd close my eyes, all I'd see is colors, and I'd uh, just see the alphabet and in French and in English. And uh, I mean, literally, my brain was like this hyperlink I'd think of one thing and I'd think of a million other things. And I was an absolute mess. I probably should have been hospitalized. And after a couple of months of this, I spoke to my parents. I went to see my doctor. And they helped stabilize me. And that was great. I remember the very first day that I felt like something had shifted. But here's the deal. For two years after I got stabilized, I was a shell of a person. I had none of the symptoms of despair and anguish and depression, but I didn't know who I was or where I was going. And even though I wasn't feeling this, I'd often wake up in the middle of the night in cold sweats, panicking. And beside my bed, I'd keep this jar of verses that I had written down on little sheets of paper about fear. Whenever I'd wake up, I'd grab one of them and I'd just read it over and over and over again. And on my jar, I'd written anti-fear pills. I'd just grab these and I'd hold on to them for dear life. And I remember one night waking up, it was about two o'clock, drenched in sweat. I grabbed one of these things and this thought went through my head. The thought was this, I cannot believe that this is the quality of life that Jesus' death on the cross was to produce. I can't believe that this is what Jesus died for. Now remember that verse where Paul said, having given us his only son, now will he not give us so much more. And I remember this verse, I've come and give you life and life abundant. And I remember saying to Jesus, I saying, Jesus, I am barely living life. Forget life abundant. I feel like I'm holding on by my fingertips. I am surviving. I'm nowhere, nowhere near thriving. And I said, Lord, I refuse to believe this is the quality of life that you paid for. Now those days seem like a million miles away. But I had to unlearn a whole load of things about God before I could learn a whole load of things about God. My question today is, it looks like the enemy is out to steal some stuff. And our job is to guard our heart and ensure he doesn't get it. The thing I love about Jesus 
as we've been singing about this morning, is that he makes all things beautiful. And he loves to trade. He's constantly into upgrading our life. He loves to trade old for new. Do you know in Isaiah 61, the passage that foretells his coming in the first seven verses, there are five insteads. He's like, you have this, but I'll give you this. Oh, you have this? Oh, I'll totally give you this. Listen to them this morning. These are some of the things that are inherent in our salvation. He wants to give you a crown of beauty instead of ashes. Anywhere that your life just looks like filled with ashes, stuff being burnt to the ground, and you don't even have a trace or a semblance of what it was or who you were. Oh, the heart of God is not that he'd sweep up those ashes, but he'd give you a crown of beauty instead. How about the oil of joy instead of mourning? You know, when you're in mourning, the last thing you think about is being happy. But the oil of joy ensures that it's not something you think yourself into, it's something you arrive at. But a garment of praise instead of spirit of despair. Instead of your shame, you'll receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, you'll rejoice in your inheritance. You know, I said that my life back then was a million miles away. I don't even recognize the person that lived like that. In fact, if you were to come back to me in the midst of my despair, I didn't have faith for the next day, let alone 20 years. But he's so good at making all things new. We just have to be careful that we don't oppose him in the process. The thing that I think God is most interested in upgrading us from this morning, and the thing I'm most worried that you're going to throw stones at me about, is this little sucker. I think God would love to say, hey, I see your cynicism and I'd like to raise you. We'll talk about what he's going to trade you in a second for, but let's talk about cynicism. It's an inclination to question whether something will happen or whether it is worthwhile. If we had a sliding scale of bad stuff, cynicism is two stops past unbelief. Cynicism is a culture or a way of living that you've agreed to embrace unbelief, probably out of protection, self-preservation. And I know this because I lived with cynicism as a roommate and a close friend for many, many years. I found that cynicism is usually conceived in hurt. And then it's fostered in negativity. And when fully grown, stunts all life and growth. Yay, it's a happy Sunday. <laughs> Can I just say there's no redemptive value in cynicism? For those of you who are thinking, I want my demon of cynicism, you can keep it if you want, but it doesn't make a good pet. <laughs> the great thing about cynicism is it always delivers what it promises. It is so faithful in its outlook to ensure that we stay miserable. See, I know this because I grew up in a culture and in a climate of cynicism. Now, you all know that story about how to boil a frog, you just keep turning up the temperature and soon it you know, doesn't jump out. For years, I thought the culture I grew up in was normal, just like the culture you grew up in was normal to you. I thought it was totally normal. Didn't, didn't think of us as negative, didn't think of us as critical, didn't think of us as a cynical or a skeptical culture, 
But then I had the great privilege of moving countries. I moved to Canada and I lived in Toronto and lived there. It was only, I'd been there for maybe two years, was it, before I went back. And when I came back to the nation that I had lived in, I was like, good feelings gone. And I realized our newspaper, our entertainment, everything in the culture that I grew up in was really rooted in cynicism. We were proud of our cynical nature. What does that do? Well, listen to some real life exchanges I had growing up. I'm thinking of starting a business. Do you know how many businesses fail in the first year? It's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. I'm thinking of buying a car. What's the point? The only breakdown. It's the most expensive way to lose money. I'm thinking of visiting America. What's the point? You'll probably get mugged or shot. (laughs) I think I'm going to go skateboarding. You'll only break your leg. I mean, this was just the, like, this was the mirror of everything that you could see in your life was something of negativity and cynical thinking. When you grow up in a culture of doubt and a culture of fear and a culture of pessimism, you stop identifying statements like these as cynical or negative. Begin to think of them as reasonable. You make a good point, actually, statistically. I mean, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah. Worse yet, left unchecked, you begin to confuse those statements with wisdom. That's not negative. It's how the world works, you know? You can have any world you want. To the despondent, but to the happy heart. See, I don't want to live in a world filled or laced with cynicism or negativity. Don't actually want to be in a church that embraces that either. Because the kingdom of heaven is one of relentless optimism. It's so offensive. Like, seriously, it's just like exhausting. Have you ever been around Michelle? Michelle, who's on the video? Like, she's just relentless in her optimism. Just, just constantly enthusiastic about everything. I'm like, oh, come on, be a bit more cynical. Get a bit more jaded in your Christian walk, please. No, she's just so obsessed with the beauty and the majesty of Jesus that it's amazing. Here's the thing, Jesus is like that. He's the most optimistic person I've ever met. He's relentless in his enthusiasm. He actually thinks he's God. You're like, no, let me explain to you why this will not work. He's like, behold, I'm standing on water while you're explaining this to me. Continue. (laughs) Ah! And the Holy Spirit is just as bad. (laughs) He's just like, I got a great idea. And you're like, okay, why do I have a bad feeling about your great idea? It's going to be amazing. We're going to totally take the world. Okay. See, we're called to bring heaven to earth and heaven is not a cynical place. Jesus' whole ministry on earth had no cynical edge to it. I read through the Gospel of Matthew last night trying to find a cynical part of Jesus, but there wasn't. All I found was utter confidence in his father's affection for him. Jesus was the person he was because of the father he had. So even when he had bad news, like his friend John the Baptist being beheaded, you see, the first thing he does is go off to be with his father. And as he's there in his time of grief and just being with his father, what happens? Multitudes come to him. And he's not like, hey, guys, time out. Like, I'm the boundary king here. Please just stop, okay? Away with your, 
you know, feed yourself. There's an Aldi down the road. No, he decides to feed them out of his compassion. Do you know even the Pharisees, the people who he clashed heads with the most, the people who caused him most grief, the people who were constantly opposing him, although he had negative things to say about them, he did not write them off. Listen to this beautiful verse. Think, hold in your mind the friction, the misunderstanding, the frustration, the thorn in the flesh that the Pharisees must have been to Jesus' public ministry. And listen to this verse, Matthew 13, verse 52. We find this in the context of Jesus speaking to his disciples. One example after another about what the kingdom of heaven is like. And it's almost a, I don't want to say a throwaway statement, but it says this. Then Jesus added, every teacher of religious law who becomes a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like a homeowner who brings from his storeroom new gems of truth as well as old. He had hope that even the people who butted heads with him, the people who wanted to kill him, would come to their senses and enter the kingdom of heaven. And he honored them for what they already knew, the storehouses of old and the revelation they'd received. Nothing cynical, nothing negative about him. He was just like, ah, the kingdom is here and it's amazing. I was thinking about cynicism the other day and I was found it interesting that we're only cynical about good things. We're never cynical about negative things. We just instantly agree with the negative thinking. But positive thinking, promises, hopes, prophetic words like, ah, you know, I don't know. How come we're never that suspicious when it comes to bad news? Yeah, I guess that's going to happen. We're all going to die and it's the end of the world. Wait, 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 wait. We don't even have a jury to hear this thing out. So I got to thinking, how is it we're never negative about negativity? And it's because you can't replace a negative with a negative. We've got to replace it with a positive. So what's the positive that God wants to trade you for cynicism? I think it's wonder. See, wonder is only accessible to the childlike. And all through the book of Matthew, when I was reading it, Jesus commends the childlike. He says the childlike will see the kingdom of heaven. Childlikeness is abhorrent to cynical thinking. It's scandalous, it's offensive, it's like a red rag to a bull. The problem that people will tell you is that wonder is totally unreasonable. Of course it is. It's wonder. <laughs> I like the way Albert Einstein says it. He's a bit of a genius. Just a little. He said this, imagination is more important than knowledge for knowledge is limited to all we know and understand while imagination embraces the entire world and all there ever will be to know and understand. Not that I want to put words in Albert Einstein's mouth, but I'm going to. If we were to swap out the word knowledge for reason, how about this? Imagination is more important than reason, or wonder is more important than reason. For reason is limited to all we know now, all we now know, all we 
something and understand while imagination embraces the entire world and all there ever will be to know and understand. I did a word study on reason, not just the English word reason, but the root Hebrew and Greek words that we understand reason to be in the New Testament, the Old Testament. And I was amazed at the results. What's funny is that almost always the fruit of reasoning is error. So in the New Testament, the most common time you find reason and reasoning is the Pharisees are reasoning against him. And almost immediately the next verses said, Jesus, knowing their reasoning, said to them, why do you say X when Y? And they're like, <laughs> their reasoning got them to the wrong conclusion. Look back in your life and the times that God moved miraculously, I bet you a million dollars reason wasn't an ingredient. In fact, there's probably a million reasons why this should never work. And yet it did. I'm not down on reason at all. But I think there's a better way. But before we move on from reason, I want to show you the one time that I found that God reasons with us. And it's a magnificent verse. It's beautiful. It's found in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. It says this, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Isn't that beautiful? The Lord whose thoughts are not like our thoughts, is like, hey, I just want to reason with you. Hey, let's just sit down and talk. Let me explain something to you. Let me, let's just reason together. Although your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. And though your sins are like crimson, they'll be wool. I want to make two points about this verse. The first point is, none of what he said is even remotely reasonable. As we'll see later. When, when has it ever been reasonable that the most just person in the universe says, I'll take care of all your injustice, all your sin, all your horror. I'll, I'll make it right. That, that's not fair. That's not reasonable. That's not right. That's absurd. That's extravagant. First point. Second point is the only time that I found that God talks about reason is referring to our past. What happens once he's dealt with your past? Well, that's where the fun begins. See, when it comes to your future, God leaves reason behind and asks you to use imagination. I'm gonna share a couple of verses with you. This is from Isaiah 55, verse eight. He says, my thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord. And my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. How about Ephesians 3, verse 20? Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, according to his power that it is work within us. The reason it's immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine is because God's goodness can't be contained. His goodness towards you today is fast approaching the level of fantasy. His kindness to you 
is at levels of outrageousness and absurdity. And that offends us because we like God in a box. But it's who he is and what he's like. He's extravagant in all his ways. I remember, you've heard us teach, I'm sure, or heard someone teach on the parable of the prodigal son. And Jesus told this story to demonstrate what the father's like. So when the son comes back from squandering his inheritance, from insulting the father, insulting the culture he was raised in, the father doesn't give him a good talking to and explain where he went wrong. No, he covered him with extravagance. The listeners of the day would have been in horror, in shock, and in awe of what Jesus was trying to teach them about the father. Now, here's a contemporary example. It's nowhere near as good as that, or it would have been in the Bible. But I remember a number of years ago, I needed a new laptop. And my laptop had broken, and so I'm doing some research and like I always do, I have a spreadsheet open. Of, I've got what I would love, what's reasonable, and what I can afford. All right? My three tiers. And I'm thinking, well, you know, maybe if I do this and I sell a kidney, I could get this. And, you know, do we need both kids? And, you know, I'm just like working through like what I've got and, you know, our resources and what we can get. And so I'm realizing that, you know, what I need is about $1,500. And that'd be amazing. But how's that ever going to happen? I haven't even left the building of faith yet. I'm just in the dungeon reasoning myself out with the fact that God could ever invade and be good. <laughs> and a couple of weeks later, a friend wrote to me and said, I was praying for you. And I felt like the Lord said he wanted me to help you buy, a com you know, some computer equipment. And I was like, that's amazing because I hadn't told anybody. He's like, yeah, so you're going to be getting a check. So I was like, that's an... You're extravagant and you're wonderful and I just love you and I always knew you'd come through. Totally did. And yeah, I'm out of the dungeon and I'm like, woo, yeah, goodness of God. And I get the check and I open up the check and the check is for $15,000. So I'm thinking, this is a test. I'm gonna, I'm gonna just blow out of the water. I'm gonna pass this test. I'm gonna reverse tithe. I'm gonna take the $1,500 I need. I'm gonna give the rest away. No, Lord was like, you could do that. I'd really prefer you don't. And I was like, what? And he's like, actually, Alan, it's interesting to me that the first thing you do when I come towards you with affection is you try and moderate me. And I was like, good feelings gone. He <laughs> said, <laughs> so it's interesting that you've been raised with such a, whatever that is, thank you, poverty mindset, with a, you know, you know, let's just, you know, checks and balances, and, you know, and the Lord was like, actually, it would be really good and really helpful for our relationship if you would just go to the Apple store and just spend the whole 15 grand of like, Lord, I will be obedient, I will be obedient. <laughs> One of those and eight of those and six of those and three of those in different colors. Because the Lord was saying, hey, Alan, the journey I want to take you on is not theoretical. I don't want to talk to you without demonstrating who I am. And it cost me so much emotional energy to spend $15,000. Because I just thought, well, you know, well, what about this and what about that? And blah, 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 blah. See, the son, when he came home, was just like, you know what? I can just be a servant. I don't even want to be, I'm not worthy to be your son anymore. I'll just work if you just give me food. And, the, and that's the way we approach God. God, if you could just, you know, ah, ah. and the Lord's like, are you kidding me? 
I didn't sacrifice the only person I had in the whole world, the person I loved the most, to get you into my family, to give you a glorious inheritance, to give you my Holy Spirit in you so that you could be like, could I? He's extravagant. He's unbelievable. And we spend so much time in reasoning who he's not that we forget to wonder who he could be. First Corinthians 2.9 No eye has seen and no ear has heard and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. See, just beyond your imagination, you begin to find the plans that God has for you. We like to interpret what God has for us within the confines of what we understand is happening right now. Makes it really difficult for God to do monumental changes in your life when we're thinking in incremental stages. Graham Cook says this, there's a way of thinking that is far above logic and reason. God is much too clever to be an intellectual. Let me go back to reason, what's reasonable, what's fair. You know, I said in that passage in Isaiah, I said, you know, the first thing is when God says, let us reason together, hey, though your sin is like scarlet, I'll make it white as snow. And we go, oh yeah, that's great. Well, we go like that post-cross. Like we just got accustomed to the revelation that changed the whole world. But it's actually not reasonable at all. What's reasonable is that we die for our sin. For the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We have a friend who was praying one day. He was really upset because an event had happened in his life that had nothing to do with him, but the outcome of that event greatly affected him. So he was like, Lord, I, I don't even know what to think. Like, this is crazy and I'm so upset. Lord, I just need you to help me. And I'm struggling because it's just not fair. And the Lord said, oh, oh, do you want what's fair? And he's like, yeah, I want fair. And the Lord said to him, then go to hell. Because hell is what's fair. We spend so much energy trying to get to the level of fairness and yet God's up like 10,000 feet from fairness in abundance and extravagance and we wonder why we can't hear him. So much of our thinking revolves around Jesus paying off our debt. And that's amazing. Like, I mean, seriously, I'm not demeaning the work of the cross. Like what Jesus did in paying for our sin is unbelievable. But it's only half the equation. I think as evangelicals, we've only plumbed half the depth of what he's done for us. We don't realize that, yeah, he's paid off our debt of sin but he's also given us a down payment, the wonderful Holy Spirit of what's to come and he wants to share his inheritance with us among the nations. Ask of me and I'll give you the nations. When was the last time you asked for a nation? I'd settle with a cheeseburger and a sweet tea. You know, with all he's done, we can't afford to think cynically. But with all he wants to do, it's perilous to hold on to our cynicism. I want to just show you a passage from the life of Israel. This passage here appears 
They've just been set free from 400 years of captivity as slaves in Egypt, miraculously. The 10 plagues has just happened. The pouring of the Red Sea, this is what we're talking about. And there's no food and the Israelites are grumbling. And so they said to Moses, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? Like how quick we forget the provision of God. Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us up out of Egypt? Is it not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt saying, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Too often we're more comfortable with the cold grip of unbelief than we are in the new territory of expectation. At least I know what I had back there. Just leave me alone to die. It's funny because by day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud. And at night they had a pillar of fire so that they could travel by day or by night. And so this horror attitude is happening in the midst of signs and wonders. See, we often think that signs and wonders would help us in our decision-making process. Signs and wonders are great, but at the end of the day, signs and wonders won't change your mind. Only you can change your mind. I've seen people who've performed miracles walk away from the Lord. The miraculous isn't the problem. It's the unguarded heart that is. See, Judas, he followed Jesus faithfully for three years, saw everything firsthand and yet sold out the Lord. Let's get to happier territory. John chapter five, verse 20. For the father loves the son and he shows him all things that he himself is doing and the father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. You and I were built to marvel. We're built for wonder. And so the fact that I've been so content for so many years to live in cynicism is astonishing to me. Graham Cook had this to say when he's here with us a couple of months ago. He said, when you believe a lie, you empower the liar. Stop opposing God with your own thoughts. If that was ever a word of the Lord for the church today. Stop opposing God with your own thoughts. Jesus said, be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And that means he has overcome all negative thinking. So this is your homework this week. You get to set aside some time to wonder. Here's the brilliance of God. You're never too late to pick up where he is. Because some of us are like, man, yeah, I needed this message like a year ago. I needed this message five years ago, 10 years ago. Hey, you know what? He's brilliant. He makes everything beautiful in his time. So you can just say, hey, you know what, God? I'd like to get back on the wonder train. I'm just tearing up my ticket of cynicism. Habakkuk chapter one, verse five says this, look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I'm doing something in your days that you would not believe if you were told. So my question is, what is God just brewing in your heart that you have the choice to wonder about, 
to fan into flames or equally to just criticize, push down, suppress, because it's not reasonable. What's he doing corporately in our midst? Look at the prophetic words. Have you read the prophetic words we have over our city and over our church? It's just like, what? Habakkuk 1.5, that's what it is. I remember many, many years ago, I was a school teacher in Edinburgh. I'd, I wasn't in ministry. I hadn't gone to Toronto. I just lived and I worked and I taught school children, which was a lot of fun. God bless all the teachers who were here. And so I'd get up, I'd go to work, I'd teach children that didn't want to be taught and I'd come home and, and on Thursday nights I'd spend time with Jesus. And one day, you know, the Lord started prophesying over me in my bedroom and I was just like, Lord, this is amazing, but I'm having a hard time handling it. Could you speak to me about it? And the Lord's answer surprised me. He said, Alan, you think Coke in glass bottles is awesome? <laughs> and I was like, what? He's like, the level of awe that you have is like, Coke in glass bottles, this is amazing. He's like, we're gonna need to do some work to expand your container of awe to fit in what I want to tell you. And he said, you would not believe if I told you. And he said, and that would be a problem for our relationship because you'd basically be calling me a liar. <laughs> He's serious about that, apparently. So it's like, well, Lord, I don't wanna call you a liar. And he's like, Lynn, you gotta expand your horizons for what I could do. See, before I ever went to a nation, he told me to go to nations. Before I ever saw deaf ears open, he told me I'd see it. Man, I just wrestle with that. Before he'd ever tell me that I would go around the world and teach people how to hear God's voice and blah, 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 you know, all this stuff. I was like, how's that ever gonna happen? Like, it's my job to make that happen. <laughs> Our job is to meet the Lord with humility and meekness and, and just agree with him. Oh, that we would just agree and just say yes. My gosh, that would propel us forward. But instead we're like, ah, I'm not even sure that's you. I don't think so. I need to do this, I need to do that. And how's that ever gonna happen? And we reason our way out of him. We oppose him with our thoughts. What's great about now is I have, as you do too, a history with God that you can look back and go, oh, you met me there and you met me here and you met me there. The reason David was so confident he could take Goliath was because the Lord had already shown him he could take a lion and a bear. So we wanna use our past breakthroughs with God and apply them to our future breakthroughs. Can I throw out something for free? Your prophetic words are best understood in hindsight. So you get a prophetic word today, I guarantee you it'll make no sense. Have fun working out what it means. But five years down the line, you look back and go, oh, you're a genius, that's what you were talking about. Oh, it was a play on words, oh my gosh, that's amazing. <laughs> but when we stand here and we have a prophetic word and we're trying to work out what it means, we're kind of like, eh. That's why scripture says don't despise prophetic words. I'm gonna read a verse that all of you are familiar with when the Lord is telling his disciples about what's gonna to happen to him and how he's gonna be handed over and crucified. And, and Peter just says, no, 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 this is never gonna happen. No, 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 negatory, good buddy. And the Lord says this to him. Matthew 16, verse 23, Jesus turned to Peter and said, get away from me, Satan. You are a dangerous trap to me 
because you are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. See, humanist thinking, rational thinking, it'll get us to a certain level, but at some point if we rely on it, we're actually listening to the voice of Satan. And we begin forgetting what God is saying about a scenario. So in our wonder, be careful what doors we open. I wanna leave you with two verses that Pastor Jeff, for me, for this year, the two verses that he's just drilled into my spirit. They're very similar. The first one says, consider carefully what you hear. So what's going into you? What are you listening to? Who are you listening to? I'm spending an awful lot of my time untangling bad teaching that should never have been listened to in the first place. In the lives of people I pastor, I'm like, what? what the heck? Why did you think that would be a good book to read? Like, seriously. Facebook is powered by suspicion and bad news. Like, it totally is. That and pictures of cute children. All right? Sometimes I'm not sure which one's worse. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. I was cynical and negative. I apologize. <laughs> How many of you remember the avian flu? How about the H1N1 pandemic that was going to wipe out America? How about Y2K? How about the Shemitah? So we hear bad things and we jump on them because they confirm all our worst fears. We don't take stock to say, hey, maybe God has an opinion on these things. Maybe he's big and maybe these words don't fit in with his plans to bless us and to give us a hope in the future to not bring calamity. I love Bill Johnson because he's a genius and he said this, He said, we stay encouraged by focusing on what God is doing, not on what he seems to not be doing. We are to feed on his faithfulness. I'd like to suggest that it's gonna be very difficult for us to go where God wants to take us, both individually and corporately, if we're scared to believe the best and used to believing the worst. We have to do an audit on what we're listening to, who we're listening to, and how we're listening. Therefore, consider carefully how you listen. How do you hear things that are coming to you with suspicion, with caution, with eagerness, with anticipation, with negativity, with doubt, with skepticism, with hope? It's important we refuse to feed our soul on anything that competes with the truth that God is good. Actually, the first thing we need to do is come to a revelation that God is good. I remember when Bill Johnson was here at Voice of the Apostles and he stood up and he was talking about the four core values that they have at Bethel and he said, you know, one of our core values, an unshakable thing that we won't move from is God is good. He said, now, there's a room here of about 8,000 people. I'm sure every Christian in this room would nod at, yep, God is good. He said, but that's not enough. He said, because there's things in our theology and in our thinking that we apply to God's goodness that if we apply to other human beings' behavior, those people will be put in prison. So we actually have to have an unshakable confidence that all things work for the good of those who love him. We actually have to have a confidence that God has our best interests at heart and that he's good and that he's kind. So here's what I'd love to do this morning 
is I'd love it if we could do an audit on cynicism. So what I'd love you to do is just quiet your heart. I'm gonna ask Jesse to come up and play. Just quiet your heart and think about the prophetic words that are written over your life. Or perhaps the invitation God's given you for a new direction, perhaps in work or buying a house or having more kids or schooling or whatever. What is the Lord speaking to you about? And what have you done with that revelation? Have you cradled it? Have you thrown it out? Because I find it interesting that both Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, had the same revelation and responded with the same question, but both had very different outcomes. So the question, how can this be, is a great question to ask. But I was like, how can this be? This is amazing. It's a world of difference from, <laughs> how can this be? So Jesse plays, and as I pray over us, just take an audit of your heart. What's your optimism level? What's your cynicism level? Is your heart sinking? Is your heart wandering? So Holy Spirit, right now in this place, would you come? Lord, I thank you, you're so gentle. You never reveal anything to make us look bad. You never reveal anything to point and laugh at us. You only reveal things that you want to take and upgrade. So would you light upon us right now, Lord? Would you begin to move in our hearts? Would you begin to show us the things that you'd love to do, Lord? The promises that you have for us, the destinies you have for us individually and corporately. Lord, the next steps, the risks you'd love us to take places to go, people to connect with, steps of obedience, money to sow, Lord, whatever it is. And Lord, where our hearts have met you with, well, that will never work. Or how's that ever going to work? Lord, we corporately choose to repent of that thinking. And we cry out, Lord, like that, Father, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Lord, we want to inch along the spectrum towards hope, towards belief, towards a confident assurance that you are who you say you are and you'll do what you said you'll do.